Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Last Friday, uh, state and federal energy ministers got together and made some important decisions that will help Australia decarbonise its energy systems. And I feel like it's been a while since I introduced a conversation with those words. Uh, Giles Parkinson is editor of Renew Economy and is here to say more about it. And Giles, it's good to have you there. Oh, thanks for having me, Kelly. And um, for those uh, who had something on last Friday night and over the weekend, what did <laughs> our energy ministers agree to do on Friday? Look, they actually made a really important decision, and that was 25 years after the national electricity market rules um, were sort of created, um, they put environment into the rules. Now, it was a crazy thing to have not put them there. They were supposed to be there when the rules were written 25 years ago, but under pressure of the greenhouse lobby, or the, sort of the, the fossil fuel lobby, called the greenhouse market at the time, the Howard government plucked environment, pulled them out of the rules, and so it just became obsessed about efficiency and costs and things like that. And so for the last 25 years, we've had all these decisions, regulatory decisions about investments, about what you can invest in, about all these other different things, with no consideration for the environment because the regulators and the rulemakers were not allowed to consider the environment or more particularly emissions. And it's kind of like, you know, and that's just allowed these crazy decisions to be made um, you know, we've written about this decision in Broken Hill where basically the network operator was forced to replace two diesel generators with another two diesel generators rather than a cleaner, uh, more efficient storage thing because on the narrow rules that they designed, um, you know, it was, it was considered to be um, cheaper, slightly cheaper, marginally cheaper to have the two diesel generators, but it's just, just madness in the, in, the, in the modern thing. So this is actually really important. It basically clears one of the major roadblocks towards trying to build the infrastructure that we need to support the renewables um, uh, transition. Um, and I just think it's just going to make such a difference. And what's really important, I think, out of the Friday meeting was that there was a real sense of unity, of purpose. We're all moving forward. There's really no holdouts in all the state and federal ministers. They all wanted to get um, this transition underway and get going. And, um, and that's really positive. Oh, well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of energy ministers and the federal minister, and really has it been the change at the federal level that's brought all this together, Giles, or really was it just a, a, a matter of, of time? Or, or, or you know, what, why Friday? Why did, why did it all sort of come to a head well, and be resolved? But- You've got, you've got rid of the biggest bollard um, out of the way, and that was basically the coalition governments and Angus Taylor in particular. I mean, they've had the state, since we made, uh, since Labor won the election in May, there's been three meetings of federal and state energy ministers. Um, there was only three meetings in the whole of the four years that Angus Taylor was energy minister, and just basically nothing happened. Um, you know, they had this farce of, sort of what they called technology neutrality, which basically means you could have coal, oil and gas, when really we know the thing that we must do is reduce emissions. So this idea of technology neutrality was a farce, but one they could get away with if the environment wasn't in the um, in the rules. So that's really great. Um, there's a few things to be sorted out. Uh, another important decision made they, ma- they made was to sort of 
sideline what's called the Energy Security Board, which was this thing set up under the Turnbull government, who really being kind of in the way of um, you know, we've got to redesign the market rules. We're moving from a coal-generated, a coal-centred sort of grid to a renewable-centred grid. That means kind of changing the rules because you've got different technologies which can do different things. And these people are considered being you know kind of holdouts and getting in the way. So. You know, it's, um, things are looking up. There's still a few things to be sorted, um, but um, I think there's just a real unity of purpose. So, you know, we've now got a legislated target, albeit way too small, 43%, but at least it's legislated, at least it sends a signal, and I'm sure that we can move forward on that. I think we're going to get great work happening on the grid now with the transport. We've still got issues about new coal and gas um, mines, you know, which are raising their heads um, so that's an issue to be dealt with, but I think the Greens and the Teals are going to be pretty strong in Parliament about that. And, and of course, we've also now got a legislated target in the US, which is which is fantastic. Yeah, I'd love to go into some more detail about that. But, I mean, some of the front-of-mind things for people at the moment are around energy costs and also, you know, we had that thread of, oh, there won't be enough supply, etc. Will this decision of the energy minister start to help address some of those issues as well, Giles? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not going to be real quick because basically um, the market, the wholesale prices, the, and, and so the wholesale prices, as everyone probably knows, has been really high over the last couple of months. And that's been for one reason, or two, you know, a couple of reasons, basically. Fossil fuel generation, the international coal and gas prices have just gone to the stratosphere, mostly because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine or the geopolitical fallout of that, the withholding of gas supplies in Europe and all that sort of stuff. Really, the only way to get over that is to sort of reduce your dependence on coal and gas and build more renewables. Now, that doesn't happen overnight. Um, so as long as the gas prices stay high, there's still going to be pain um, at the switchboard with, with the bills coming in. There's probably nothing we can do about it, apart from people making their own choices, if they can, to sort of put solar and, and, and do things like that. But having more renewables coming into the grid over the next two, three or four years is really the long-term solution. So we won't have any of these. We won't be held hostage to sort of international commodity um, price sort of um, cycles and things like that. We'll just be reliant on our own wind and solar and backup storage and things like that. That'll take time. But what we're seeing now with these decisions made by the ministers over the last couple of weeks is we're going to go there as fast as we possibly can. It's, it's interesting how the sense of, of relief that it seems that we're, we're, we're seeing um, changes happening and decisions made by energy ministers that actually go to the net zero targets that all states and territories and the federal government have committed to and now legislated um, as, as well. So it seems that the policy and then the actions and the regulatory environments are starting to sort of turn into a, a cohesive, um, what would you say, like constellation of, of decisions, Giles? I mean, this is, yeah. you know, what's your sense? That you've been reporting on this for a very long time. Uh, have you seen this happen yeah. before? No, well, look, I think probably if you go back to um, 10 years when the um, Gillard government and the Greens actually... Um, um, put together this sort of clean energy package with the creation of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the Renewable Energy Target, ARENA, Climate Change Authority, all things which have stood the test of time, apart from the carbon price, of course, because the coalition government you know, destroyed that and tried to pull down all the other things as well. But um, And that was a moment of great celebration. Then after 10 years of just sort of opposition and bollards in the way, I mean, what you just said then, relief, is exactly the feeling. I mean, on Friday, you could just almost hear 
you know, the sort of the sense of relief, the sort of, you know, the breathing out, sort of just the relaxation, the just sort of sense of accomplishment. Oh, we've got here finally. Um, and, um, yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was really interesting seeing the Twitter lines of some of the energy ministers. They were just so pleased, so delighted that they could actually work together and do something rather than having to constantly fight and push back against, you know, the, um, basically the stooges of the fossil fuel lobby, which is what they felt they were dealing with before. And uh, interesting if um, the similar feeling is there in the US. We're speaking with Giles Parkinson, editor of Renew Economy, and the US, um, the climate and healthcare bills passing. Maybe for those that don't know what they what they are, um, describe that, but there's, you know, something approaching, you know, $400 billion, $370 billion in funds aimed at expanding renewables now going to happen there in the US. Um, that seems like progress too. It does seem like progress. Look, it's a long way short from what Joe Biden promised when he became president. He wanted to do a $2 trillion package. Um, but, of course, he came up against, you know, the Republicans, the right wing once again, um, in the Senate in particular, um, and just big pushback. And he also had this sort of wayward Democrat Senator, Joe Manchin, who comes from a coal state, West Virginia, who's got coal interests of his own. Apparently, you know, it's quite clear. He actually owns interests in the coal company, so he doesn't want to do anything against it. Um, quite extraordinary for a Democrat senator to... Position to be in, but look, finally they cut a deal um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it got voted to the Senate and then the House of Representatives last week. It sets a 40% reduction target for the US uh, by 2030, which is reasonably significant. Again, not quite to the science, but at least it's legislated, at least it's a target. And throws, as you say, nearly $400 billion at this um, at this thing. Look, there's a, there's a few problems with this. Um, you know, they offer basically tax credits, they offer rebates for electric vehicles, they offer support for green hydrogen, which should pull green hydrogen costs down to this, down to actually lower than, than blue or grey hydrogen, which is hydrogen made with fossil fuels. So it all seems quite positive in the headlines. I think there's a few concerns over some of the details of it and about how effective some of them will be. But look, it's um, it's a great step in the right direction. Um, I just guess in the US, because they've got the midterm elections coming up soon, you just wonder exactly how long this legislation will actually stay in place. Not a single Republican voted for them. Uh, but then again, um, there was only one coalition minister uh, or MP um, voted for the... Um, for the um, for the climate package put forward by Labor, so you just we've still got these entrenched positions on either side of the political divide, which is really frustrating and quite worrying, um, because you just wonder if there's going to be a switch in power, then all of a sudden all these gains that you've made you can lose. But for the moment, things are looking a lot better in the US um, and for the world because of it. Yeah, and and hopefully sticky sticky change as they call it. But I, I also uh, wonder then about. Uh, the the COP27, so the climate talks coming up later in the year, it is a different Australian and US offering to those um, negotiations. Do you think it will make a difference um, to those, Giles? Yeah, it's amazing. I've, I've actually been to a lot of these COP, you know, these United Nations um, basically sponsored annual climate talks. I've been to about eight of them over the years, and it's just fascinating to see the influence that Australia actually has um, at these talks. I mean, people sort of say, oh, look, we only account for 1.3%, but we're actually quite an influential place because, you know, um, you know, we are such a big fossil fuel com- country, and we have got such potential in renewables. We've actually got really smart, smart policymakers, and 
um, and things like that. So some of the things that we produce, like the clean energy package and the carbon price and the renewable energy target before that, have been widely admired around the world. And so what we do, actually, what we say at these conferences actually matters. So the fact that we've now got this real positive energy coming through um, at the next talks is going to be quite crucial. I've seen that happen in Bali in 2007 after the election of the Labor government whole complete change in atmosphere and purpose. And I've seen the opposite happened in 2013, just after Abbott got elected, and you could just sort of see, you know, they were just shattered. Um, the, the talks that year were actually in Poland, and all of a sudden Australia just went overnight from being a constructive player in talks to being a complete obstacle. It was just quite extraordinary. And the people who were there, the, the representatives of Australia, were just shattered because all of a sudden they had to go into the same room with the same people they've been talking to for months, in some cases years, and just present a completely opposite position. And people were just going through the corridors then just going, what the hell is going on here? Of course, the answer was Tony Abbott. But, um, you know, and, but that's, that's the sort of the crucial role that these things... And it also shows how fragile the, the nature of those talks can be, but then how positive they can be when, when people are working together. Absolutely right. Well, Giles, good to have you on on a, um, on a good news day. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> look forward to catching you again really soon. Yeah, but hopefully the news does stay positive. So uh, there you go. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Speak soon. Uh, Giles Parkinson there, editor of Renew Economy. Um, good place to go if you want to follow um, the kind of ins and outs of what's happening with the energy systems, energy markets, renewable energy progress, technology and the like. And um, Renew Economy also has a, 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 another magazine called The Driven, which has a look at the electric vehicle progress. So if you haven't, um, if you're interested in that, you can find that there too. Radio 3 Triple More patients are finding it difficult to find GPs who bulk bill and it's a particularly challenging situation for people in regional areas who need to travel to access affordable health care if there isn't a bulk billing GP in their local community. Stephanie Convery is the inequality reporter at Guardian Australia. She's been reporting extensively on this issue and Steph, it's um, really great to have you there. Good morning. Good morning. It's really great to be here, Kalia. And um, I mean, why is it harder for people to find bulk billing GPs at the moment? I know a lot of people are in this situation. That's right. So there's a few reasons to this, and it's um, something that has been growing over the last, I suppose, about 10 years, really. So um, if you go back about 10 years to the previous Labor government, they introduced a freeze on Medicare rebates. So it was only supposed to be temporary, and it was meant to save about $664 million, I think was the figure, in a year. Um, the next year, the coalition government got in at the election and they kind of kept that freeze in place. So we have seen basically stagnating Medicare rebate rates for the last decade or so. That has kind of coincided now with uh, cost of living crisis, inflationary crisis. There were a whole lot of things that sort of shifted around Medicare and around bulk billing and, and telehealth and things like that during the pandemic. Plus, there were all of these extra costs that medical professionals needed to um, outlay to deal with COVID. So now what we're seeing is practices 
generally speaking, are finding it much more difficult to make ends meet. It's about only about 40% of the money that comes in to a, a general practice goes to paying the doctors. The rest goes on things like rent, on um, overheads, various other kinds of things like administrators and assistants and receptionists and technology, as well as medical supplies. So all of that stuff coming together and you suddenly see, like we're hearing so many reports of people being told that their local long-time bulk billing GP or local bulk billing practice is no longer doing that. And over the last few years, I think we've seen increasing amounts of, of, um, of GPs sort of moving to mixed billing or private billing where you're paying a fee on top of whatever the bulk billing rebate is, getting some money back, but not all of it. Um, and I, we, like some of us in the office, we're also receiving these text messages from our GPs saying, you know, this is this is changing. We're changing the way we're billing. So it is a real it is a real issue, and it's kind of coming to a head right now. And I mean, makes you wonder then how the system works. I mean, is it that GPs can bulk bill if they choose to or can afford to, but actually it's not a requirement to have bulk billing clinics in particular communities. It's actually discretionary, is it? It, it, yeah, so, yeah, it really is. I mean, um, I think it's important to know that most most GPs are not salaried. So they're not employees of a practice in the way that you and I might be employees of a company. They are contractors. So they're sort of there's – a, there's a whole kind of um, – uh, negotiation that goes on about how much they get paid, but depending on how much money they bring in from um, their their patients. I think it is also important to note that that just on Medicare rebates alone, most GPs say they could not make ends meet. So the, the rebates, I think, the, they have they they cover about forty percent of a short clinic, a short sorry, a short appointment, what it would actually cost the GP to run a short appointment. So it's not very much. You can sort of see how how there's a big there is a gap in kind of costs that they need to fill. Now I mean there's a lot of people who who balk at that because they know that GPs um, the average salary for a GP is quite high. It's usually a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Um, that said it is, it is, by all accounts, from the people who run these practices, much harder to make ends meet, particularly if you are a small practice. And this is something that was kind of counterintuitive to me when I was talking to GPs and practice managers over the last few weeks with my colleague Mel, who's done stacks of work on this. She's our medical editor at The Guardian. But I, I sort of thought, well, you know, a smaller clinic, you know, should be able to kind of... Um, you know, economise and things like that should be able to sort of serve the community better. But it seems that actually if you are a bigger, like, super clinic, like one of those companies that runs multiple clinics around the country, and there are a few of those, that you can kind of get by on economies of scale. You might have the pathology place in the same building. You might also have, like, so many people, like, servicing servicing patients that, that you can, you can um, build, bulk build more people. The problem is there is, there is an incentive in the way that the Medicare rebates are structured to provide shorter appointments rather than longer ones. And when you're do- that's if you're bulk billing. And the shorter appointments, are much more, it's much more difficult to properly treat a patient that has very complex conditions or, or um, ongoing conditions as well, like it's a, it's a management program. It, it means that you're much less likely as a bulk billed patient, if you are bulk billed, to get proper care than you are if you're paying out of pocket. And you can just see how the, that, that creates a whole new layer of inequality for people. Yeah, and I really find the reporting you've done on this fascinating, Stephanie, because you are taking that inequality lens, so to speak, with regards to your um, 
your brief there at The Guardian to report on inequality. So when you look at the healthcare system in this light, the idea that short consultations actually is in, entrenching a um, healthcare inequality is just a, a fascinating um, view. What else did you find when you were speaking to uh, patients about the situation they find themselves in now? Like what, what are they needing to do to be able to manage in the current climate when, when they do need to go and see a, a GP? So when I when I kind of approach an issue like from an inequality lens, what I'm trying to do generally is speak to the people who we don't generally hear from. So we we often hear from medical professionals in this in this conversation, um, and you know it, that's that's totally fair because they're the ones providing providing the service, and they they often also though are I mean they're very well educated. They have a platform on which they can speak often, and and they can generally make their arguments in a compelling way and very easily to the general public. But we don't often hear from the people who are, for example, low-income earners or they're on job seeker or they're sort of, um, uh, they're not very social or they're, they're very sick as well. So what I wanted to do with this, with my part of this series was to kind of speak to the people that we don't always hear from about their experiences and what's going on. And as a consequence of like sort of like a very wide outreach like it became really clear that that the cost of medical care, the cost of basic medical care now, is preventing people from accessing it. I mean, that's kind of um, intuitive anyway when you think about about costs and inequality. But like many of the people that I spoke to, particularly those who were on fixed incomes, like on Job Seeker or on the disability pension, they were saying like. The problem is not that I have to pay $13 for my short appointment. That's, that's how much they will be out of pocket. And, and even though that is, that is a fair bit if you don't have very much money and our, um, our uh, income support payments are some of the lowest in the OECD. So they, are, they do not have very much money. But they have to have the whole amount in their account in order to pay for the appointment. So it's not $13, it's $80. And then they get some of it back, but they actually have to have the $80 sitting there. That's actually really hard if you don't have very much money. So in one of the stories, I spoke to this man called Joe who lives in the Yarra Valley, and he has so many conditions that he deals with every day. He has to see the doctor regularly. He, he also has to have specialist appointments regularly. We didn't get into that very much. That's a whole other kettle of fish. But he, he basically had to tell his um, GP that he was going to have to limit his visits because he had to pay his house costs. So he had to pay for electricity, he had to pay for gas and all that. He'd already cut those back really far. He had to pay for food. And in the middle of, like, an inflationary crisis, food has gone up, particularly in regional areas where there aren't as many choices as there are in the city. So his doctor's appointments were going to have to be cut back. He's like, I, I can't do anything else. Um, and it, and I can't... I'm going to have to deal with the consequences, obviously, but, like, that's, that's the only choice I have. And he's not the only one I spoke to who had that experience. So many people were telling me, like either their long-term GP has just stopped bulk billing, which means that they are going to have to find somewhere else because they can't afford to keep going there, or they they have to drive or drive, drive themselves or drive their elderly parents, in a few cases, uh, like half an hour to actually get them into an appointment. Because the other thing is, if there is a bulk billing clinic nearby, particularly in a regional, regional area, it is almost impossible for people to get a timely appointment because there are so many people who need that service. And so you, also really found, you actually found also that some bulk billing clinics, while they might keep bulk billing existing patients, aren't actually able to take on new patients as well. So that's also in the mix. 
That's right, yeah. So the clinics are making all kinds of decisions to either be able to maintain their bulk billing for some patients, um, whether it means that they can't bring in new patients, whether it means that they, they that you can't get an appointment, like where they limit the amount of bulk billing appointments that they can have so that they, they're private billing some people but bulk billing others. Um, but that it does mean that, you know, if you are desperate for care and you don't have the money to, to lay out for it, you are really at a disadvantage. And it means that people are just going to get sicker. So one of the GPs that I spoke to has done, you know, is very embedded in this research and was telling me that, um, that there is, that the primary care systems that are really, really robust, where you, you know, you know your local GP, you can talk to them about any issue you're having, you see them regularly, and they're the kind of first port of call, they listen to you, that is another, I mean, that's a whole other story, right? The amount of, like, the lack of, of listening that can happen when you only have a very short amount of time and you, you know, you're kind of pushing patients through. Um, but when when that's a really when that system is really robust, it is less expensive, and people are better. They they have healthier outcomes than if you kind of rely on people going to hospitals or to specialists or sort of shifting the the burden of care down the road a bit. Um, and I think that's really important. Like we sort of maybe we need to rethink the models on which um, we base our primary care systems. Maybe we need to be setting up salaried GP clinics. I personally don't understand why we can't do that. Um, it, I think I understand GPs are salaried in hospitals, but they're not generally in a practice. So, yeah, there are, there are a bunch of different... There are people with a bunch of different ideas about how we could be sort of fixing it, not just about increasing Medicare rebates, though obviously we ought to be doing that too. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I really like this idea of taking a different perspective to reporting on these issues where you're looking at it from from the the situation of those that are least able to pay or, or the most vulnerable in a community because you start to ask these questions that maybe um, have already been answered in different ways over the years, but why not ask them again? And, I, I mean, there is a sense that the, uh, the, the health minister, Mark Butler, is sympathetic and has admitted that primary care is not in good shape at the moment, and this is, you know, due mm. in part to the to, to the pandemic, but also other factors. But do you think we're likely to see any change in this space, uh, Stephanie? Have you got a sense of that happening in the in the short or medium term? Uh, I mean, do I have faith in our current politicians to to be radical and try and reform a system like this? No. <laughs> um, I hope though that with enough public pressure, they will they will be forced. Their hand will be forced. I, I mean, I feel like I feel like the current government um, has sort of been pushed into admitting that things are not as good as as they could be, um, and. And if we can continue to push them, then then we may see movement on this where we might not have thought that we would a few months ago. I mean, I think that's really important. Like, we need to keep we need to keep pushing and talking about this, and we need to keep giving voice to the people who are being most affected, most negatively by it. And that's the people who are vulnerable in vulnerable communities, in um, low on low incomes, who are out in regional, rural, remote areas where they don't have access to these things. Like, it, it is. It is really important that they're first and foremost in our minds, because because if we look after them and we look after, if we look after the people who are most hard done by in our society, then everybody benefits. And so, I mean, you have done polls of when local GB clinics have made the change from box billing to to charging um, fees or at least part fees. Are you still looking for people to contribute to your reporting um, over at the Guardian? 
Yeah, so in particular, we're looking for people who want to tell their personal stories of um, their experiences with GPs, so uh, from a patient perspective. Um, I am in particular looking for people who are who have to deal with specialists a lot and who, who have to navigate that system, and particularly if they have chronic pain or chronic illness, I'm really interested to tell some of those stories, so please do get in touch. We also have a, um, and I'm actually not sure if it's still open, I will double check, but we have a call-out form on our, on, on, in, our, in that series that basically just allows you to tell whatever you feel comfortable telling um, your experience with the Medicare system at the moment, whether you're a GP, whether you're a patient, whether you're a part of a vulnerable community or whether you're from a cold community or from just a, you know, in a city or whatever your experience, if you have something that you think we need to um, incorporate into our understanding of the situation, please do, um, do get in touch because all of your stories matter. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. And since we had David Mann last in the house, um, the Billawilla family has returned to their community and been granted a permanent visa. Such good news and too long in coming. Um, but there are many more cases of refugees and asylum seekers languishing in our community still. Um, where are we at with uh, the reform agenda in this space and what might happen next? Um, so David Mann is Exec Director of Refugee Legal and it's always great to have you on Triple R. Let me put your mic on there because there you are in front of me. Good morning, yeah, David. In the studio again. It's I know, great it's, to be back in the studio. It's very nice. And um, and so the Billow Wheeler family is is there back back in Billow. They are. And um, it's gone from really sort of inhumanity to an act of humanity, I guess, to finally after such a terrible, sorry, saga, um, and uh, you know, and, and real cruelty, the infliction of real cruelty in um, the treatment of the family. Um, finally, uh, they've been granted permanency, so they're not not only sort of um, home in Bilawila, but can I guess call it home in a in a permanent sense. And it's such a such a, an absolutely uh, wonderful development, of course. But it's it's also profoundly important, I think, because it does signal. Uh, a, a massive change in the approach more broadly, we hope. And uh, it certainly um, both has that really practical uh, dimension to it of, of the family themselves, uh, you know, now getting permanency, but also the, the, and the, the community that have embraced them so deeply. But, but also, I think, more broadly in Australia, I think that, uh, you know, it is a good reminder that right across the country there is such a generosity of spirit toward people seeking asylum, to refugees, and I think it does capture that in, in both a practical and symbolic way. Yeah, look, it, it filled my heart, definitely, and I, I think uh, many people would, would say the same, and it felt very much that uh, the the government um, in, in granting um, more permanency for that family was representing um, me, you know, and I think a lot of people felt that way too. But we know this ministerial discretion aspect of our system can also play the other way. I mean, what's what's your sense of 
of how our system is right now um, in different hands, David? Yeah, look, I, I think that there's um, it's a big it's a, a period of change of really major change, and I think it's also worth just remembering here with. Uh, that, that change doesn't uh, periods of change and potential for major reform don't come along very often. So they they can be sort of once or twice in a generation. I think we're in that period now. But as with all change, um, the shape of it, the exact shape of it, uh, you know, what's going to happen, um, what what the uh, what the sh- what, what the elements of it are is very unclear. So there's some key priorities at the moment. Uh, one of them is you know there are there are nineteen thousand people across the country who in the last decade or so were granted protection as refugees but then only granted temporary protection because of the way that they arrived in Australia, that is, by boat, and have been um, essentially... Um, have, have yeah, been, there's been a second wave of suffering, being in limbo, essentially, in the community, but not knowing what the future will hold and, you know, knowing that every three or five years they have to reapply. So the government have committed to uh, change... They've committed to converting people on temporary protection to permanency, but that uh, that policy still um, hasn't uh, hasn't transformed into to action yet. And so, um, we and others have been very directly um, at the table, sort of you know, urging that the government act swiftly uh, to convert. Uh, people on temporary protection to permanency so that they actually um, have a sense of certainty in the future. They can rebuild with that sense of more certainty and security and and belonging, you know, in the community. And uh, so that's a major priority at the moment. Um, we are pressing for that to be done urgently given, um, you know, the real, real fundamental importance for all of those people um, and their families because, you know, the policy too, the, that policy has not only left left people with that Degree, that terrible uncertainty, perpetual limbo, but also barred them, totally barred them from sponsoring family. And, I mean, look, again, we I think that there is a great sense of empathy in the Australian community about being trapped away or barred from, from seeing family in different circumstances, definitely, but with borders closed, we, we have lived a degree of that, but certainly not... Um, what, what you're talking about here with temporary visas. So is it the, the case with, with 19,000 people in that situation where they've got temporary um, protection, mm. is it the stroke of a, of a pen or or are we going to need to see massive workplace, like workforce planning here? I mean, what, what does that look like, David? Well, what we've said is that it can be done quickly and simply um, by a simple change to the regulations to effectively deem everyone who's on a temporary visa uh, is offered permanency and then they can go online and, and uh, that, that's what we've said, and go online and, and accept the offer. Uh, and uh, I can tell you that so many people, thousands and thousands of people we've helped uh, through this over the years who um, are desperate to uh, take up if that offer was made available to take it up. But um, look, I, I think that one of the things which um, has also come with the TPV policy has been you know, so many people on TPVs and SHEBs, you know, which is the five-year version, it's, um, you know, of the TPV. There's the three and the five-year. Um, so many people have um, tri- yeah, been getting on with their lives as best they can, um, you know, contributing in, in, you know, really wonderful ways in the community in so many different ways and um, not just through work but in a whole range of other ways and um, uh, becoming part of the community. I just think it would be transformative uh, in terms of uh, moving quickly for everyone to do that and um, I don't think that it does... 
It does require a decision by the government. So in terms of that stroke of the pen, yes, it does, but it can be done very simply and quickly. It doesn't need to go through you know, major sort of, you know, a major legislative process. It can be done quickly. But I think the other thing about it is that there are people, there are many people um, out of the overall 31,000 who are also refused under this fundamentally flawed legal process. The big question is for those, this includes, by the way, people from Afghanistan, from Iran, from, you know, from Myanmar. People were, some people were refused under that process and are now appealing their cases. So there's got to be a solution for them too. And so we've also put a, put a solution to the government about how to also to engage with people and provide them options as well. And so there, there's 19,000 uh, that you mentioned uh, could be switched from, from temporary protection visas to permanency, but the 31,000 people, are they... Um, what, what's their circumstances in, in the broader sense? Yeah, so the, so the 19,000 are part of that 31,000. Mm-hmm. So, the, look, the, the numbers, I won't go through the technicalities, but put it this way, that uh, the, 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 the vast majority of the, the remaining people out of the 31,000, so you've got the 19,000 granted protection mm-hmm. as refugees, and then the remaining people, most of them have been refused under this absolutely flawed process, which was And not... so they're living in Australia, yeah. but having been yeah. refused... Um, protection. That's right. And so, uh, and I imagine they're all in all different circumstances of appeal or, or whatever yeah. that might be, but they're still here. They're still here. So is there a way that the, the government can um, resolve or work with, with, with such a, a large group of people that uh, have, you know, really massive uncertainty on their future here in Australia? Yeah, so what we say is, you know, move swiftly to, to convert people who've already been granted protection as refugees, permanency, but at the same time provide options for those that haven't to either um, have a quick form of reassessment of their claims because there are real questions over whether those decisions were right, real questions. I mean, people... Well, things have changed in Sri Lanka also. And so we've got these um, countries, as you mentioned, Afghanistan and Myanmar and Sri Lanka in particular. We know there's large groups of people from those countries here in Australia in this situation those countries, um, have their, their security situations are, are worse yeah, than they it. were than they were even at the beginning of this year or, or last year. Exactly. So reassessment's got to be part of the plan. Um, and again, don't drag it out. Short and sharp, uh, but uh, and but fair. Short, sharp, and fair, but also um, for those that might not be um, found to be owed protection under that kind of kind of process. Um, Look at other options. There are plenty of other visas under the system they might qualify for, you know, um, and uh, lots of other different kinds of uh, visa pathways, as it's called. Um, but the other thing is um, ministerial discretion might also be important. I mean, yeah, there are people who have been here, you know, for a decade or more now um, who've made a remarkable contribution. Now, that that, that should surely feature in the thinking. Um, but also, uh, there might also be health reasons having gone through such re-traumatisation due to the limbo and the unfairness. So there's a whole range of potential options for government. But we say, get on with it, um, act quickly. Um, it's, uh, you've been, there is a legacy here which has been so harmful, but there is the ability, as we've seen with the Billawheeler family in a different context, albeit, um, there, it is so important that humanity be brought to bear here, a humane response. And what about, uh, I mean, we have heard that the, the government has said that the, the broad structure of, of the border, border protection so-called policies 
will remain. So offshore detention is part of that. What's the situation with offshore detention now, and uh, uh, David? So the, 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 the basic situation is that together with Nauru and PNG, there are, there are roughly 200 people still remaining. Um, and, uh, the, uh, and so the, they still are marooned. Um, in you know this cruel limbo, uh, and then of course there's well over a thousand people who were offshore who were brought back uh, largely medevaced, uh, and they're still in limbo in the community. Living most most people are actually in the community uh, rather than detention now. Um, some people are still detained as well, and they're in right across Australia, and they're still in they're in limbo too. So basically limbo. A cruel, ongoing limbo, long-term limbo, is the predicament at the moment. The big question then is, well, what's what are the solutions, of course, to this? I mean, this is where I'm sure your question was going, and I, and uh, they, they're limited. Um, what they are, the US deal, you know, where the US agreed to take up to 1,250 people, uh, that's almost been the numbers have almost been used up, so that's almost at an end. The only real major remaining option is the New Zealand deal, which uh, the former government, um, you know, announced, you know, not long before they lost government. Now, the issue here is that over three years, there's 150 places per year for three years that New Zealand have agreed to. So that extent, you know, now for anyone who is able to be resettled to New Zealand quickly, that has to be um, welcomed. But the big problem is that it's going to drag on. Um, for quite some time on the basis of this. And the other issue is that even once all of those places have been used up after three years, at best there are still well over 500 people with no solution remaining. David Manns with us, Exec Director of Refugee Legal. And um, you should see my note paper here, David. I'm writing down all these numbers and just really trying to get my head around this really legacy. I know you've called this... Um, you know, legacy caseload almost that yeah. you've, talk, um, you've spoken about over over the years we've been having on Triple R, and so here we've got it. It you can put some numbers around it if we can resolve and and support um, each of these people to to move on with their lives in in more with more certainty. What then does our humanitarian intake look like in Australia? What 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 is our capacity then as a country to offer? Asylum offer homes to people seeking refuge um, around the world right now. Yeah, you see, I, the, the the humanitarian intake um, is to me, um, in terms of in policy terms, since the Second World War, it's one of the golden threads of modern Australian history. You know, we're we're we're, we're edging toward um, one million people resettled since the Second World War, and um, you know it's been it's been part of the bedrock. Not, not, you know, not just of you know where we're heading, but it's the past, the present, and the future. It is actually not not extraneous, but it is actually central to who we are, um, who we where we've come from, and who we are. And um, and yet. The program itself, I'm not going to go through all of the numbers at the moment, but basically it's been the numbers were reduced under the former government. They were they were reduced back to 13, well, 13,750. But basically the government, the, the Labor government have committed incrementally over time, not within one year, but over time to increasing the intake to 27,000 over time. In addition, they've committed to 16,000, they've, they've retained... 
the former government's commitment to an additional 16,000 places for Afghans over four years, um, over and above. Uh, but what what is critical here is that the intake be lifted um, incrementally but swiftly. So, for example, next year, getting it back up to 20,000, um, which happened under the formerly Labor government, and then incrementally building from there. But with it, I think that what has to come with it is, as well... Um, uh, opening up our engagement to the world again um, because it is actually ultimately the response can't just be a domestic, can't just be about Australia. It has to be about responsibility sharing globally and what, what's Australia's contribution going to be. We know that this government has retained um, you know, boat turnbacks. Okay, well, they have, um, and um, many objections, fundamental objections can be made to that. Turn back to where? To further danger. But... That said, what is Australia's contribution going to be globally to unprecedented numbers fleeing from their homes? And this has to be one element of it, central element of it, and we're great at it as a country, resettlement. We're, great. we're, we're one of the leaders in the world and um, we need to... It, I think it is really central to rebuilding refugee policy. Yeah, and I think, I mean, look, I'm I'm someone who with heritage with refugee displaced people from Second World War yeah. background and so you can sort of, you know, that, that um, experience within your own family can sort of inform how you might feel about these oh, yeah. sorts of things as, as a country. But I yeah, mean, my, so I mean, much... I just say just just there. My my um, grandparents, my maternal grandparents, Henry and Kate, uh, fled during the Second World War, and um, Australia took them. Um, they fled separately, and uh, Australia took them in. So you know, I'm, I, I feel very much a beneficiary myself of the policy. And so, I mean, what what do you think at the moment with your engagement with with government, David, about how and when and in what ways they might actually progress this area because it has been an area of stuck policy for a long time. Yeah. So, look, the, the, the former government left the whole policy, the refugee and migration programs uh, and the policy in a monumental mess to shambles um, and on so many fronts. Central to it has been exclusion, deterrence, um, you know, um, dysfunction and harm. We know that. Um, so it's a major reform agenda, and I think one of the one of the things we've been very engaged with it. And uh, one of the things is um, there are key priorities, and one we haven't mentioned, but I do think is just quickly is is really fundamental is indefinite detention. I actually think that's foundational. If if we can make major fundamental change on indefinite detention, I think it would have major consequences more broadly. Because put it this way, if we can lock up, as we've done now for decades, innocent people, just lock them up without charge indefinitely and often for prolonged periods... Um, you can pretty much do anything. You can start to... I mean, that, that opens up the dark pathway to Nauru and PNG is my view. So just I did want to note that the current minister, Minister Giles, is starting to make some significant moves on that. Um, there have been some some very important progress in terms of release. Not 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 everyone, but in, indefinitely detained, but there, has been, there have been some releases so far. So there are some positive signs on that front, and that's very, very welcome. But, you know, big reform is required. Back to your question, though, in a more general sense... There are so many areas of reform, you know, clearing the backlogs of tens of thousands of cases sitting there at the department and at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. I mean, the delays and the gridlock, the backlogs are just 
monumental and it's not just going to take hiring a few more people to process you know it's it's a bigger reform that it's also about how you process uh you know and and you know, it's about systems good people etc but that would be fundamental but the broad broad issue is that with all of these reforms and others they also they need to be sequenced you know what comes first you know what what's most important they need to be sequenced but they also need to be integrated because there's a, a, a very deep relationship with a lot of these reforms. They, it's not just one thing, but it will relate to other issues so that there's a connection, interconnection between them. And it's complex. And I think that what we also have to have is, of course, the ongoing political will for change and, uh, and also making sure that people with expertise and experience are at the table to explain what policy does to people, what, what the policy has done to people, what's required in terms of change. Well, you've always got a seat at our table, David, and um, thank you so much for coming into Triple R. And look, I've got my fingers crossed that the Labor government has um, some great strategists with heart uh, at their table, and uh, that we can see some some movement in this space. Thanks so much. For thank you, in. and I hope people use their voice too. You know, maintain the rage, as they say. Um, we want reform. Exactly. Can I just final going back to your point about the the, the Bill Wheeler family? As you say, it, it spoke to you, you know, and I think we need reform that speaks to us. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.